Well, welcome back to Action RC, the podcast series taking you inside RC racing, both now and over the 40 plus years of its history. There are world champions, there are multiple world champions, and there are multiple world champions who've won in two disciplines. Masami Hirosaka comes to mind, Bruno Coelho, Atsushihara, Joel Johnson, Naoto Matsukura, rare company. And my guest today is on that list, winning world championships in electric off-road in 1995 and nitro off-road in 2006, but also winning the 2002 IFMA World Cup for 200mm nitro tourers in an event that was effectively, if not technically, the first world championship race for that category, putting him on a very, very short list of drivers that have won world championship races in three categories or more. Put on top of that, finishing second behind at Sushihara in the 2000 EP on-road ISTC Worlds, a whisker away from a world championship in a fourth category. Extraordinary. He is, of course, Mark Pavitas, a guy who might just have a claim to being one of the best all-round racers of all time. Mark, I am honoured that you've taken the time to have a chat with me today. Welcome to the show. I oh, appreciate the time, Scott. It's, uh, it's been fun juggling a little bit of time zone craziness to kind of get ourselves into this conversation, but it's nice to have a chance to have a chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries. Um, yeah, that's quite quite the introduction. Um, as I mentioned before, I think uh, you've done done your homework and uh, probably know more of my history than I do. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll test. We'll put that to the test. Now, before we dive into kind of that history, I do just want to ask you about the Dirt Nitro Challenge. I think you were there just a couple of weeks ago with your son, Ryan. Yeah. Everyone knows the story, the crazy weather, that little indoor track that was built. What, what was that event <laughs> yes. like from your perspective? You know, how, how did it go? Um, I think it went as good as it could have gone yeah. considering yeah. the circumstances. Yeah. Um, I mean, not every outdoor event has an opportunity. <laughs> it <laughs> has a place – with a with a covered uh, roof nearby that they could quickly do plan plan B yeah. and that's what they did plan B and uh, as small as it was it got everyone racing yeah. you know I think that's the main thing and uh, we were able to com- complete the race so it looked hats like off a little, to them looked like a little almost uh, the word that comes to mind for me is boring like a you know just this it, little tiny yes. fast kind of furious racetrack. I, I guess, uh, you know, kind of the word that was going around is, you know, you take NASCAR that races on these big, you yeah. know, three-mile oval tracks and then go to this half-mile, yeah. you know, <laughs> dirt track. You know, tempers were kind of high because of the yeah. tight racing. Yeah. Um, lap times were, you know, many laps put down in a short period of time. and um, But all in all, I think it made for a different perspective of, of racing if yeah. that makes sense um the crowd i think was a little more involved because because of that and uh but they did a great job they got the race in yeah, and uh, right. made the best of some bad weather so nobody's gonna forget that dnc i don't think uh <laughs> and i i was just watch, i was watching the finals going i can't imagine driving for 45 minutes on a 16 second lap kind of racetrack like that you know with traffic and <laughs> How did Ryan go? Ryan, your son was running at the event. Yeah, yeah, he he was uh, he was racing in the pro class. Yeah. Um, 
had some struggles with traffic as did most drivers. Um, and, you know, I think being young, it's, you know, it can play into your, you know, how, how it affects you driving. And, you know, that's all part of racing, right. That you have to learn how to deal with that. And, um, you know, it'll come with time, you know, he still has a lot of learning to do, but, um, definitely the lap times are there and the speeds there. And so it'll come. Yeah, good. Well, we might come back to him a little bit later if we have time. Let's let's dive into your story. Um, take me back to the beginning. How did how did this kind of start for you? Where were you? What's the origin story for Mark Pavitas? Yeah, I mean, RC for me started uh, with my dad. Um, yep. We lived close to a park that had a RC flying field in okay. it, and. Yep. Um, so my dad, he, he, he was in the Navy. He worked for Ford, uh, aerospace, um, just kind of grew up in the, in that kind of background and, you know, Boeing. So when I was, when I was growing up and we lived across the street from this park that had a flying field, um, he was still kind of in the retirement stages of, you know, finishing up his Navy career. And, uh, you know, worked on the flight, flight deck on an aircraft carrier. Oh, and so he, lo- he was intrigued with aviation. So yeah. we, he, he purchased some RC airplanes and, you know, at that time there's no, uh, ready to fly airplanes. <laughs> no. It's, you, no, you gotta, yeah. you gotta build them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was maybe six or seven at the time. And so, you, know, you buy these airplanes and and then not only do you buy the airplanes but the radio there was a kit to build wow. the radio wow and uh he still has it in his garage and yeah. along with some of some of the old airplanes that we crashed together <laughs> but uh <laughs> yeah but that's that was kind of my intro to radio control is was through the airplanes and um seeing him build them and, you know, take months to build these airplanes all out of balsa wood. And they had plans, you know, blueprint plans and like, gosh, you know, four or five months to build these airplanes and seconds to crash it into, you know, (laughs) and uh, he would buy these magazines and in the magazines, you know, there was pictures of RC cars, mainly Tamiya and, um, that was like, yeah, why don't we just get a car? You know, you break that and just go to the store and you buy a replacement part or, it's a you know, little bit simpler, it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot simpler, but, um, yeah. So that's kind of how it started was through magazines, you know, seeing other sides of RC other than airplane. Yeah. And, uh, we went to a swap meet where people were selling old used equipment and they had some, it was a Cox Lamborghini uh, wow. car okay. and it uses like uh Duracell batteries or something. I mean, it's very okay. just yeah. generic. And uh, so that was kind of the, kind of the intro into that was, you know, trying to get parts for that, which was a Cox car. And for the old timers out there, Cox was kind of a staple for the like, airplanes that you'd fly on, on the, on the wire. And they also had a small line of, you know, Cox Scorpion was a, was a very popular car. car. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, got parts for that. Oh, now you got to go to the hobby store to get parts. And then, Oh, look at all these other cars oh, you can look. buy. So, yeah. So it just, it just kind of escalated from that. But I think the first real RC car that I got was, it was for Christmas, um, was a Tamiya super champ. Okay. Yeah. Classic, the classic Tamiya two-wheeler buggy. Yeah. 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 So the night before Christmas, I could, you know, obviously your parents are up late and you kind of figure something's going on, but you're not watch what, 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 uh, exactly is going on, but you hear just this whining noise and then banging <laughs> into the table and you're like, what is going on? Yeah, a little bit of test my dad, he's, yeah. he was finishing it and he didn't know how to drive it and it was hitting the wall. And <laughs> yeah, so come to find out the next morning, that's what it was. Like all fathers, I've spent many Christmas Eves building trampolines and bicycles and all sorts of things. But that's <laughs> that's a new one, building a, a, a sand scorcher, a rough rider, in yeah, Christmas Eve. Exactly, beautiful. Yeah. So, so where how do you how do you then get from you know that kind of to a to a racetrack? Where does the kind of racing side of things um, go for you? Yeah, so you know it was building dirt holes and yep. friends' backyards that had other cars and. Um, and then shortly after that, my neighbor at the time uh, that lived next door to us, he he purchased a Tamiya Grasshopper, I believe. And at that park that had a flying field, they had put in a, a very temporary RC track. Um, they didn't hold really any races there. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, obvi- at that time, no pipes. It's just all dirt yeah. um, w- with kind of dirt lanes, I guess you would call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of how, oh, now you, oh, they have a place where you can go and you do laps and they have little jumps. Well, this, come to find out, talking to another person that was there running at the same time, uh, there was this track in Costa Mesa, California called RCH. And, uh, they held they held events there, you know, I think weekend races twice a month or something like that. And so my dad and I went to go check it out and we pull up and there's gosh, probably fifty cars with the hoods <laughs> popped open. And I'm like, You're just in awe, you know, like they had all these people parked around the track with the hoods open because that's how you charge, right? You hook your charger up to the battery of the car that's and the way turn the dial, let it charge. So, um, but yeah, that was kind of, kind of where in a way you go. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, never forget the first, first actual race. Um, this track RCH had a secondary track at a BMX track and, uh, it was built on this small hillside. So my friend and I were like, Oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to do it. This is our first race. We, we practice in our backyards. We're going to show these guys that race all the time. What's going on. So we figured we'd put the biggest pinning gear on our motor because that's what's super fast, that's right. <laughs> at yeah. least in the street in front of your house. Yeah. Um, but it won't get you up any Hills. No. <laughs> so we got there and sure enough, you know, I think my pinion gear fell off to begin with. And, uh, you know, so we're swapping stuff back and forth and we, our cars were just geared so high. They wouldn't go up any of these Hills. So I don't even think we finished any of the races cause no one had spare parts back then. 
So it's, a, it's an inauspicious beginning that led to a glorious career. Uh, but obviously yeah. the bug, the bug bit, right? Like, so obviously you, you know, there either that day or in the days to come, you, you know, you really kind of fell in love with. Uh, oh yeah. With RC. yeah. I read a story that you were, you know, at one point you found yourself in a queue to purchase one of the first RC tens. They were so popular that, you know, they, they were oversubscribed and you had to kind of wait your turn. Is that, is that the story? Have I read that story correctly? Yeah. Yeah. So that track, um, RCH, which was here in Costa Mesa, Southern California, mm. um, there was a few people, and I say a few, I probably two, maybe three people that had this at the time associated RC 10 gold chassis, yeah. just totally, totally different than the stuff that was out there. And just killing everybody at the track. <laughs> and it wasn't because they were better drivers, just their car wasn't yeah. bouncing all over the place, you know? And, uh, and I told my dad, I'm like, hey, I whatever it takes, we got to get one of these if we're going to keep going to these events. So, yeah, my dad put us on a waiting list for one of these cars. And, uh, and you know, and Associated back then, they were, they were local, but they could only make so many cars. So... I think it took us like three, four months to get a car that came into the hobby shop um, that we were, you know, on the waiting list for. It was, I mean, it was an extraordinary car, wasn't it? To the, you know, a real step change and, you know, we'll go down in history oh, yeah. as one of the most significant RC cars of all time. At what point do you kind of, as you, you know, as you keep going, as you keep racing, as that RC10 comes into your hands, at what point do you get the sense that actually this is something I'm pretty good at? You know, I, I, I kind of know what I'm doing here. I'm making progress and becoming competitive. How quickly does that happen? I, I think early on you kind of know if you have that kind of competitive itch. Yeah. And um, I, I quickly knew I did. Any any kind of like racing, you know, racing your friend down the street early on before it became competition, you're like, oh, yeah, I got to beat this guy. You know, what can I do to make make it better and going to a track just um accelerates all those feelings of trying to beat the other guy and um you know like i said early on going to some of these events um you know just very local um it just kind of opened your eye to how competitive this hobby of rc racing really was so i mean just tell me a little bit about that kind of Californian scene in the in the middle to late 80s I mean it, from the outside from a distance it you know we're just assuming that it's incredibly strong there's racing all over the place there's superstars you know popping up all over the place the first world championships is there in 1985 was it like that for you did you know did you have a sense that it it was all happening in California yeah um you know because my only connection you know, back then, obviously no internet, no anything like that. Um, so you're all kind of, you're just reading, you know, the magazines that you can purchase from your hobby store. Um, you know, competition plus as a magazine. Um, I think RC news was another magazine. So there's a few of these magazines and in those magazines, they would, you know, post maybe a page of, some of these events and some of these events happen to be in Southern California. Yeah. So, um, the, the, they had made mention to a track that was opening up, you know, all the tracks at the time were in fields or 
you know, near hobby shops, that type of stuff. But there was this one track opening up in Huntington beach, which was blocked, you know, blocks from my house at the time. It was an indoor track. And, uh, I told my dad, Oh yeah, this track's right down the street. You know, we got to go check it out. And, uh, so sure enough, we went down there and maybe this was in 86, 87. And, uh, electronic speed controls were um, kind of a rumor that was going around. So yeah, yeah. the RC10 that I had had the wiper arm yep. inside yep. the car. And uh, so anyway, my dad, he would take me down to the track and typically he would just kind of drop me off. And, you know, I could, at that time I could do my own stuff and, yep. you know, you're just charging batteries and replacing parts and which I love to do. And, and uh, anyway, we we're there, and this this uh, kid and his dad come walking in. I'm like, man, I recognize this guy. And uh, come to find out, it's Jay Halsey and his dad. <laughs> and it's that classic picture that we've all seen with Jay's car, you know, like kind of full sized, sitting next to the trophy, yeah. or you know, he's. Picking, it's just the classic ads that Associated yeah. had that made you want to get the Associated car. I have to have And here case. comes, yeah. yeah, and then here comes Jay Halsey. You're like, that's the guy that won the world championships, <laughs> you know, and he was so fast, you know, and yeah, yeah but uh, iconic for sure. Iconic ads that really They're incredible. made him stand out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do, I mean, how do you kind of, you know, what's it, give me a couple of steps on the journey then from, from that sort of, you know, local race meeting, someone like him walks in to, to kind of competing with people like that at a national level in the U S you know, you, you obviously kind of progress reasonably yeah, so I, to do that. I raced there for, for a while. And, um, at the time I, uh, 88 or 89, little fuzzy, but there was a national, um, in Northern California for the electric, you know, for the 10 scale cars. And, uh, I told my dad, we got to go like, this is the, all the people at this track are going, you know? And, uh, so anyway, uh, I think I was 16 at the time and we drove, we drove all night cause my dad got off work and he, he wasn't taking too much vacation time to go to this RC car race. Um, but yeah, we drove up there like a seven hour drive, something like that. And, uh, got to this track and it's next to this airport and it's, it was in Antioch, California. And we show up the next, you don't really know until you get to the track to set up. And, you know, I had the classic plastic fold out picnic bench table <laughs> that had, you know, I think you've seen in all the classic yep. pictures we all had them um, we all had the mark yeah we all did it's crazy yeah. and uh yeah so we pitted with some friends it was extremely hot um but they had a record number of entries for that one i mean even probably to this day i think was the largest roar nationals wow. and it went to like the double d or double e main wow. in in stock buggy <laughs> and unreal. I was so happy because I made the D main that that week in modified, which was a class that I don't normally run. I was more of a stock person. And uh, 
the computer broke. They had to fly in a computer from, I believe, the ranch pit shop, you know, and yeah. somebody there had a local airplane. He flew back to filming. It was crazy <laughs> stories. Um, but yeah, that was that was kind of my first big race was that that race in Antioch. And did that take your kind of, I mean, I'm going to use the word addiction to the sport, your kind of desire to race at the highest level? Did that experience just kind of elevate that to a whole new level? Um, um, yeah, it it went from, uh, you know, I met I met a bunch of people from all over the country that race um, that I'm still friends with to this day, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, but that race, you know, it was so I didn't realize it could be so competitive that people from all over the country, as far as way, far away as Florida, would travel to this to race their RC car. I'm like, this is this is insane. But um, yeah, by making the the D main there, it uh, because I raced at our local track, which is also close to Associated. Um, I knew kind of the people, like maybe not on a personal level, but like Mike Reedy, for example. Yeah. Um, he knew I raced at that track, and he's like, yeah. "Oh my gosh, you made the D main and modified. That's that's a big that's deal. really yeah. really good, big deal." So I kind of got on his radar from that race. Um, and then, uh, I would say the following year there was, I think the national went to Detroit, Michigan. And he said, uh, Hey, look, um, I would love to help you out and get you to that race, you know, cause obviously it's expensive. Yeah. And he goes, we'll take care of your airfare and, you know, some parts here and there. And if you can cover the rest. So of course I talked to my parents and, <laughs> you know, if, if they were fine with me, you know, flying, you know, with this guy, Mike Reedy and, and, and they're like, yeah. So, yeah. So the following year I, I went there and, um, gosh, I don't remember. You probably have the notes there, but, uh, oh, yeah, I did, did, I don't, did US pretty nationals good. are a bit hard to find actually, but the results yeah. are kind of that far back. So, yeah. But uh, yeah, did pretty good there, and um, and then yeah, shortly after that, uh, you know, I was I was working for a local hobby shop at the time, mm. you know, in and out after school, yeah. yeah, during the week weekends, and and then Mike Reedy uh, said, hey, why don't you come work for me after school, you know, Monday through Friday, and uh, I was like. Wow, really? <laughs> so most of so, us work in supermarkets or hardware stores or, you know, whatever it might be, you're working with Mike yeah. Reedy. I mean, that is every 16-year-old RC racer's dream job right there. Uh, yeah, it was crazy. So, yeah, it started off, um, yeah, so that now I'm working at Associated and mm -hmm. um, I started there, I think, my mm, maybe senior year mm -hmm. of, of high school and uh yeah worked there for gosh every day after school i'd drive over there work for a few hours you know obviously because they close you know i was only there three four hours after school each yeah. day yeah but helping him with uh you know soldering the capacitors on these stock motors and the in bells at the time and um just all the kind of small labor stuff that they needed you know, I was able to help them out with. So, so that was kind of my, 
Yeah, yeah, it wasn't bad. I'm going to go ahead then and claim that the Reedy modified motor that I had in the early 90s was soldered by you. I'm going to... <laughs> <laughs> I never knew yeah. that before. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. I just assumed it was mine. Um, so let's kind of, I'm just, you know, conscious of time, we got lots to cover. So let's kind of dive yeah. a bit further forward then and, and kind of, you know, when, when do you first dip into or have a sense of the international scene? You know, that at this stage, you've kind of been raised a couple of US nationals. When do you start to kind of see the, the wider world? Obviously, the world's come to the US, to Detroit in 1991. Is that your first kind of international race or did you have a chance to race overseas before that or how did that um, No, so... Um... The first international race was um, trying to think. Uh, I believe it. I believe it was when uh, we went. Brian Kenwald and I and Mike Reedy went over to England to race a, a Reedy event. Yeah. And um, you know, I've never been out of the country. Yeah, yeah. You know, still pretty young you know late teens early 20s and uh got introduced to the international scene which was a you know of course mike he travels all over the world so he already knew what was going on and you know brian and i we didn't really know that was going on um at that level and uh, so that was interesting learned a lot um i think that race Brian won two-wheel drive, and I won four-wheel drive, driving a Kyosho car. Okay. Ah, okay. Pre, prior to the Yokomo day, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about cars. So let's let's do a quick tour through some world's results then, because this is kind of one of the focuses of our conversation. I want to get to 1995 in a minute, but 1991, mm-hmm. the world's is in Detroit. Um, you're in Correct. the final in two-wheel drive. I'm assuming you were driving one of those crazy prototype RC10s. Um, yes. For that, for that super rough track, Did, were you involved in helping to build those cars or prepare them? You know, while you were working at Associated, or how did that happen? Um, yeah, I did a little bit. Um, I think that was one thing that was really special. Um, you know, pri- so the worlds prior to that was, I believe, in Australia. Australia. Yeah. And um, I was there at Associated at the time, but I didn't okay. go. Yeah. And, um, and I remember, you know, I was kind of just coming into the, I was obviously ad associated, but mm. I wasn't involved in the, the high end part of, I guess the yeah. compet- super competitive side of the racing. But, uh, I remember walking into Cliff Lett's office and they had, you know, the five cars that were going to Australia or how many, it wasn't a lot, but there Not was no, these special right. cars that were all hand built yeah. in his office, all in bags with people's names on each bag, all built. Just all you need to do was put your transfer, your electronics into it. Yeah. And that's one thing associated kind of did special for, you know, all these worlds, you know, up until the cars became not so handmade. Yes. And, um, yeah, so you know, Australia was that way. Detroit, when I got to go, um, it was that way. Everyone that was there, for the most part, received these special cars, um, stealth cars, and uh, they were only run at the World Championships, which, which made it even more kind of voodoo, uh, <laughs> you know, type thing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so that was that was pretty cool. Um, and got to race that and 
finished. What did, you, what did you make of that world championship? Like, this is your first one. You're in the A final in two-wheel drive. You know, you're running right up the front of the field. What What did you make of that whole experience? Um, that there's a lot of fast guys, and uh, and I remember, man, if I can get just a clean start, I'm I was just as fast as those guys. Um, and I think in one of the mains, I finished second or third or um, pretty high up that um, I, it gave me some hope that, yeah, I'm just as fast as these guys. I just need a good start. So, you know, you get two or you get three, three finals to kind of prove yourself. And at the end, uh, walked away with fifth, which for my first Worlds was pretty happy. <laughs> I should say so. I think there's uh, there's no reason not to be happy with that. An incredible race, and uh, we'll I'll put some links to some videos in the show notes. That even today to watch back that racetrack, the way that it changed, not only across the event but even within a race, the bumps seemed to move and shift and change, and that uh, yeah, that RC10 was something else. That's for sure. Yeah, 1993, you're in the UK for the Worlds at uh, Basildon. Uh, yep. Again, you're in the O-Final in two-wheel drive, also in four-wheel drive. You know, this this is a race where it seemed like Losi were, you know, in the ascendance until sometime late in qualifying. You know, the, the story goes that Associated found some hydro drive units and put them in some of the leading drivers' cars, and that kind of shifted things. And Kinwell, you know, comes from way back on the grid and wins that famous story from 1993. Sure. What's, what's your recollections of that event, of, you know, being there and being yeah. part of a part of um, that's pretty much it is that um, we knew that that hydro drive was kind of key to taming the car down um, on that style of track. You know, it was a little bit rough, um, obviously a little faster than the tracks that we would race on back home. And uh, Losi did have, uh, of course we went over there not knowing that, Hey, you need to have these parts in your box. And, um, you know, all the testing we did, we thought our stuff was pretty good, but we never really tested on a kind of that style track. So anyway, we get over there and uh, Gene Husting at the time is like, we've, we've did pretty much done everything. The only thing we haven't done is put this, uh, the silly hydro drive <laughs> onto our cars. And uh, anyway, Gene's like, well, I'm going to go uh, around England pretty much. And I'm going to go to every hobby shop until I find these stupid things. <laughs> and he comes back hours later. Um, and he's got like four or five of these things. And of course it's up to him to, to, to see who gets it. And yeah. he handed them out to the guys he thought had the best chance. And, yeah. um, you know, it did, it, it helped tame our cars down. And, um, it, it was kind of that missing link that that our car needed for that track. Again, an unbelievable race. Uh, and yeah, again, there's, it's not hard to find video on YouTube and things from the final series there and, and the story of that race. It's two things you've said there, Mark, that I just want to kind of momentarily mm -hmm. detour onto. One is, one is a reference to the different kind of track that you encountered there. And, you know, I guess before we kind of move away from that comment, I just want to, you know, I'd love to ask you to reflect on what that's like to travel around the world and find such different kinds of racetracks all around the world. You know, what you might be used to at home in, in California and then you go to England or if you came to Australia or you went to sure. you know, to Europe or South America or whatever it might be. You know, how 
much of a challenge is that for you when you kind of land somewhere and go whoa this is a different kind of racetrack um, how do you get your head around that i think those are only things that you can learn mm-hmm. by going to all these different it's something i try to teach you know ryan um and it's not something that you can say okay you have to do xyz and you'll get this result it's it's something that you just physically have to go do and adapt um adapt to it physically like your brain it just has to adapt to the conditions um just like a skier would adapt to going you know skiing in let's say utah you know utah here in the states versus the snow in italy you know the snow is going to be different um depending on the humidity and everything else that's involved and it's really no different when you go to the racetrack um you'll have different i think that track from what i remember had like small seashells in the dirt which made it somewhat abrasive and it rained so then they put you know like a sawdust style on the track and just became very bumpy where our tracks here at home where you're either racing inside or if you're outside you know you have a small tractor that prepares the surface and then it's packed down with a nice roller and it's very well maintained and you know over there in england the weather is always a factor so they don't get to race in the same conditions that we do we're we're pretty spoiled it's a it is a particular kind of racing isn't it um the other question i wanted to ask you about 93 you know this is you're in the four-wheel drive final and you know my my recollection from magazine kind of world of that era is that four-wheel drive is not that big or not that popular in the u.s and you know you guys probably didn't Mm -hmm. run that much four-wheel drive so was it was it a case of just showing up to a world's and you know yokomo or whoever it was would have some cars for you guys and or do you get to prepare and practice well and, you know, test things back home? No, four, four-wheel drive was always kind of like, uh, you know, the stepchild of, you know, when you go to these races, you, you didn't put a lot of time into it. The premier class was always two-wheel drive for sure. Hmm. And, uh, you know, if you, if you excelled well in two-wheel drive, you know, you're like, oh, wow, that's awesome. And you kind of use four-wheel drive to get track time for two-wheel drive. Yeah. Yeah. So, or just a bit of fun. Uh, yeah. All of which makes what happens next on a world's level quite incredible to me that, you know, in 1995, you show up in Japan and you win forward drive. So, I've got a, a few particular questions I want to ask you about 1995, but let me just invite you mm-hmm. to kind of reflect on that 1995 worlds, on going to Yatabi Arena, on being in Japan to race. You know, what, what was that whole event like and how did it go for you? Yeah. Uh, so leading up to that, I've, I've been over to Japan probably prior to that event and to that track, maybe three times okay. for Reedy always used to have a race over there and um, in Japan and like a Reedy style race more for the Japanese uh, racers. And, you know, at the time, Brian and I went over there and uh, for a Reedy race and just a little funny story is we went over there and, um, Brian had taken his car that he won the worlds with to that race and we're racing and, you know, it's pretty low key. It's out in the middle of nowhere. And anyway, we were pitted across from Masami and his dad and 
they're like, yeah, can we leave our stuff here? And it's like, oh yeah, you leave your stuff here. No problem. So we left our stuff there all set up and Masami's dad, Masaki stayed at the track that night. Like he always did just would not stop wrenching. And he fell asleep on the table and someone came and took Brian's two wheel drive car and my car. Oh my. Gone, gone, stolen. Whoa. Which never happens in Japan. No. Crazy. So then the next morning, we're like, uh, yeah, we don't have any cars to, to compete with the race. So we ended up borrowing cars and racing them at the race. So, um, wow. but yeah, and Brian's, did, yeah. Did either of those cars ever resurface or they were never seen again? Not that I know of. No. Wow. So somewhere out there is the world championship winning RC 10 of Brian Kinwald. And, yeah. Because back own. then yeah. no one, you know, we didn't really yeah. save our car. We, we no. always, Oh, yes. next race. Yeah. I'm yeah, going to yeah. go, I'll go right. race it. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, we were over in Japan <laughs> a few times prior to that, but that's one story that kind of goes under the radar. Cause not a lot of people remember that, but that, um, wow. can you imagine if that car resurfaced now on the black market? It was, <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. So but, tell me about the worlds. Um, you get you get there for the worlds, and you know what's what's the, yeah. What's so the story we get there event? for the we get there for the worlds, and um, I think the I don't know if the first event was two wheel or four wheel drive. I'm not sure. Yeah, I can't actually. Um, sure. um, anyway, we we get there and we run, and mm. the 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 big thing at that track was tires. Mm. Um, ProLine had, you know, shown up at the race with this tire, which was called the fuzzy tire at the time. And yeah. only, only Yokomo tires worked up until that event. And ProLine kind of came, came through with the, the first kind of low mini pin style tire um, that worked extremely well at that track. And it kind of blew, blew away Masami because he had the tire game really dialed in. Yeah. And, uh, so we showed up there with that and then, you know, uh, for two wheel drive, they had the B2, I believe, yeah. um, ran that worked well, Matt Francis won, and then come four wheel drive, everyone goes to the race and no one has a four wheel drive because they sent us bought at Yokomo. Anyone that ran associated pretty much ran Yokomo. And, uh, at that race, they sent us all bodies because their car wasn't finished. Because again, at the time, um, everyone was hand building a lot of these parts, you know, and um, the arms on the car were machined. Um, I think when we got there, some parts were machined and then they handed us, you know, actual production type parts that we put on our cars. Um, but pretty much the car came in a bag and you had to build it. So there was a day or two prior to the event and our, all of our guys were building cars at the tracks and you heard dremels and, you know, stuff <laughs> going on and it was crazy. So yeah, we kind of built the car there at the track and relied on them to kind of give us a starting setup. And we went with that. Was it, was the cooperation good between the A and Yokomo kind of team at that point? Are you getting good information from people like Masaki and Masami, you know, setup that you've just talked about? Is it pretty good? Yeah, for sure. Um, the, 
I remember going to them and they had, uh, (laughs) there was something with the top plate in that four wheel drive car and it wouldn't fit the car exactly right. And the belt would kind (laughs) of skip when we were driving the car in the pit area before the race started. And I remember Masaki, he's like, oh yeah, I can fix it. And he would just take the car kind of over his knee and kind of tweak it, like kind of bending it. And the car had so much flex in it that he would bend it and then tighten the top deck down to keep the belt stiff. And I'm like, really, this is how you <laughs> but, but that's what he did. And at the end, of, um, I think during the race, we kind of nicknamed him magic hands, you know? <laughs> so I'm just, I'm but yeah, just no, there was good cooperation. Yeah, I'm just as we speak looking at photos of a replica of that car and can just imagine it in Masaki's hands. Uh, getting yeah. the twist. I have to ask. I mean, this is this is really the crux question. I have to ask you. What does it feel like to go to Japan driving a Yokomo four drive at Yatabi Arena and beat Masami Hirosaka? I mean, yes, another competitor, but greatest of all time probably his car, his track, his country. I mean, of course, right? You're going there and Masami's track record, you're like, why are we even going? I mean, that's Masami's track. Like, why? You know, he, he's so dominant and yeah. four-wheel drive was always his class that's that his he dominated thing. it. Yeah. So, so, yeah, we go over there with the mindset of like, well, okay, well, we can all race for second, I guess, you know? And uh, And then it was quick to find out that that wasn't the case, you know, I think Masami qualified third or fourth mm. in four wheel drive, you know, and Brian first. And I think I was second. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it was crazy. And to see him and to beat, you know, I have a picture that Jurgen Lautenbach from LRP gave me from that race, um, kind of a collage pic- picture frame that I still have. Mm. And you know, the main picture on it is the podium picture, you know, myself, Brian, and Masami. And, I mean, to be on the podium with those two, yeah, insane. Yeah. It, it really is. You look back and you're like, I mean, those are the two best, yeah. in my opinion, two of ever. The absolute giants. Yeah, that's right. So, to, to beat Masami at his home track... And to be on top of the podium in front of those two guys, um, pretty epic. Is there is there a sense for you in that you know in in winning that world championship of, I mean not I don't want to say mission accomplished in the sense of nothing else matters, but you know you've been racing by this stage for ten years. You, it's quite a journey from you know that that little kind of racetrack in the park across the street, you know from home with right. Tamiya to to standing on the podium at Yatabi. Um, Mm-hmm. And a sense of of the enormity of the moment and the achievement, and um, I don't know. I've never won a world championship. I don't know what you think about when you do that. Um, yeah, like I said, I think uh, you know. Then you're like, wow, I just you know, uh, you kind of knock this guy off his off the po- off the top step of the podium, who just was untouchable, really, in all categories of yes. racing, on road, off road it didn't matter and um and to accomplish that at his home track (laughs) you know it wasn't just a race in japan it was at his home track yeah that's right and uh so 
I think it set in when we got home and, you know, people wanted to see the trophy and see the car. And I think I raced the car at, you know, maybe a cactus classic or something after that. And I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it just, you, still you know, nowadays, yeah, it's here. It's here. It is. It's here. Um, Masami, um, shortly after that race, they had asked for the car back. It's kind of a, it's another kind of a long story. I'm not going to get into too much because we'll be even later, but, um, they had the car. It wasn't really their car, <laughs> their yeah. car. We sent them a different car with my body. And then when Masami kind of retired from Yokomo, he sent back this car. So now I have two, <laughs> two of these cars. Um, that's a whole nother story for That's another time. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. We'll save that. We'll save that. <laughs> but yes, I do have the car. Beautiful. Uh, I want to I I kind of flick over into eight scale off road in a moment, but just before we do, you know, there's another there's another four world championships that you know you're at and you're in the front end, you're in the A final at the ranch in 1997 in Finland in 99, that crazy indoor super rough track in South Africa in 2001, and then you're on the podium in Florida in 2003, you know, to kind of complete that 10, 12 mm -hmm. year run of a finals. Are there, are there, I'm really conscious of the time, but are there any kind of particular memories from any of those, you know, how unfair is it of me to ask if we kind of skim over those, but. Um, yeah, I mean, two, you know, two of those that kind of got away. Um, one was the touring car worlds again, back in Japan, again, back at Masami's home track. Um, so again, another rate. Yeah. Yeah. So that one kind of got away due to some rough driving. Um, but, uh, yeah, and the Finland, other one was fi Finland. You TQ, don't you in two wheel drive? And, yeah. And so two. Finland was the other one. Um, I, I remember that, you know, some hard fought battles between myself, Brian, um, and, and then it obviously came down to Masami and I, and, uh, there was kind of like a, like a whoop section or a rumble section coming onto the front straightaway or the back straightaway. And, uh, my car went through it perfect every lap. And for whatever reason, Masami was maybe five, 10 feet behind me. And, you know, I'd go through it just like it did any other time. And all I had to do was finish, I don't know, maybe four more laps and the car got loose. <laughs> Oh. and he got by me and I finished second and uh, yeah, it's just like, no way that just happened. So I, I finished second, you know, to Masami. I mean, there's no shame in that, but when you fall laps away from winning it, that's uh yeah, that's, that's a bit hard uh, to stomach. That yeah, was tough. Yeah. 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 Yep. It, how, how much is the, is the kind of rivalry a thing for you, you know, over that area with someone like Masami who you, you know, Masami, I'm guessing you might get to race against once or twice a year, as opposed to, you know, say someone like Kenwood, who you're probably racing with more regularly at home. Is there a kind of a strong yeah. sense of a rivalry there? Yeah. I mean, obviously Brian and I started off as teammates hmm. and uh, we, we really fed off each other, you know, to make each other faster. And I mean, I really owe a lot of my, I guess the speed at that time, because Brian and I on the local level would push each other, not only on the track, but trying to make our cars better, you know, at home. Yeah. Um, you know, so we had that, that 
friendship there um, that that kind of spawned the competitiveness on the track. Then he switched to Losi, and now it's like, oh, great. Now this guy that we kind of feed off each other, I have to – it's not like, oh, he's on my team and we're going to share stuff. I got to I gotta try to beat this guy. Yeah. So it turned in – it turned a little dark. And, um, yeah, there was times where I'd say more often than not, Brian and I hated each other. Wow. And um, – you know, Finland being one of those, you know, I, I think it's like any, anyone that, you know, back then I wanted to win. And, um, you know, if you leave me an opening on the inside or whatever, I mean, I'm going to try to make sure my, my car can fit in that opening, you know? And if that, if that came down to bumping that other guy and then that's probably what I would do, you know? And, I, I'm not going to sit here and say I was the cleanest racer, but I wanted to win. So it really spawned some, some rivalry between Brian and I, and, um, you know, Brian, Brian raced me hard too. So, um, which kind of made you want to race him even harder. And, uh, you know, we travel all over the world doing this yeah. Florida and the world. And yeah, so it made for some interesting races and, um, some memorable races. I bet. I bet. Did that, uh, you, you talked about it getting a bit dark at times. Did it, you know, is like over the, the kind of long term, and, you know, was there a, a kind of a reconnecting of that relationship or did that, that sort of friendship? Yeah, for sure. I think it's like any, anyone that races competitively, whether it's, you know, RC cars or Formula One or motocross, is that you're, you're going to race your competitors hard and, um, you may have those dark rivalries, but you know, when you're, when your time is kind of done racing at the highest level, as well as your competitor, you know, the one that you've been racing the hardest against, you kind of reflect it. You kind of go back and bench race, I guess you would say is, um, you know, you kind of go back to some of those races and, now it's more of a joking way, like, oh, you got me there and, you know, that type of thing. And so towards the end there, yeah, I was happy that, you know, Brian and I could kind of see past all those, yeah. whether I got him or he got me. And, you know, um, it wasn't really about that towards the last few years. No, that's right. <laughs> so, but uh, that made it nice. I, I know that uh, some of the guys that I raced close and hard with for many years are now are now some of my good really good mates and we spend our saturday mornings riding mountain bikes in the bush telling stories about yeah. exactly that you know yeah, uh, yeah. There's one famous australian championship that came down to a tiebreaker which i lost uh, and my friend steve who beat me on that day reminds me of that <laughs> almost every saturday morning <laughs> yeah yeah now we all talk about how fast we were that's right how fast we used to be yeah Mark, let's um let's shift gear, kind of literally and metaphorically. Let's talk about eight scale off road. I, I read in an interview with you that you you'd started to go to the world championships as far back as 1994, when eight scale off road is probably barely on the radar outside of Europe. How did you come mm-hmm. to be at that 94 Worlds? You know what what made you fall in love with eight scale buggy? Like you know what's the eight scale origin story? Um, it it kind of started it it started off uh. I think Cliff Cliff Lett at the time was 
he had a car, a Kyosho car, and he had it in his office there at Associated. And I'm looking at it and it started and it sounded like a dirt bike and, you know, had the smell to it. And it just brought a whole different sense, um, a whole different dynamic to, to the RC scene that, that was kind of lacking in the electric side of it, you know? And I was really drawn to that. And, um, so anyway, I was trying to figure out, Hey, how can I get one of these cars? And, you know, I didn't have a ton of extra money because associate doesn't have a car. Yokomo doesn't have a car. So I need to find a way to get a deal on a car. And I kind of talked my way into Mugen. Um, at the time they had a distributor over here in the States and, um, they, they were willing to send me a car and, let me go to a few races, you know, and see how it went. And, uh, so that's kind of how it started. They had a track out again out here in Southern California, uh, out in Hammett, very small track compared to today's standards, even smaller than what we raced on that DNC a few weeks ago. Wow. And, um, yeah, that's kind of, kind of where it started. And I was racing the Mugen super athlete at the time. It's a great name for a car, isn't it? It's, it's a super athlete. <laughs> yeah. And is, so did you go to that Worlds in 94 with Mugen or was that a little bit later on? Um, yeah, that, so that was with Mugen hmm. and um, in Austria on the biggest track, even to today's um, standards, massive. And it was all built on a hillside and in just a beautiful part of Austria. And uh, yeah, never forget it. Great race. I've seen some footage from or some photos from that. Yeah, it looked like an incredible thing. So is I mean, is there a kind of an eye is that an eye opening thing for you again to go to an eight scale worlds where it is, you know, in that era in particular so dominant, the European kind of scene is so dominant. Um, yeah, because at the time I think only Chris Moore hmm. and Joel Johnson at the time went to a world. Okay. And uh I forget where that one was in Thailand or something like that. So when, um, so at this world that we went to in Austria, it was me, there was probably now there's a handful of, of Americans at this right, you know, at this event. And, um, in the final, it was just Chris Moore and myself who made the final for the USA. And, you know, at that time it's, it's only been European or Japanese drivers in the finals. And uh, so, yeah, that was kind of like opening the door to uh, eight scale here in the U.S. It does seem like that kind of, in a sense, awakens a sleeping giant, doesn't it? Because over that next sort of 10 years from there, um, you know, through the, through particularly the late 90s and early 2000s, I guess, U.S. eight scale racing does explode. You have the Worlds in Vegas in, well, I think that was 2000, wasn't it? And it was in Vegas. I and- believe so, yeah. People like Greg Degani and yourself, you know, are, are kind of traveling to worlds all over the place. And what was that? What was that like? The kind of energy around eight scale as it started to kind of grow and and raise up in the US. Yeah, it was it was getting big. Um, you know, just you know, back then the DNC, the the Nitro Challenge, um, as it what it's called today. Um, in the past, it was uh, the Kyosho challenge i think it was called um about the same time of the year 
And every year they have this small parking lot and it would just get more and more and more crowded. You know, again, people coming from all over the U.S. to come to this event, this very small track. Um, but it's kind of where the RC industry is, is here in Southern California for the U.S. So, you know, all the manufacturers were there. Um, I know at the time that's when Associated raised their gas truck. You know, the prototype versions of it was at that event. So the gas truck kind of helped us get to more of these gas events, you know, associated made a gas truck. They didn't make an eight scale car. So, okay, I'm going to sign up for gas truck, but I don't want to sit around all day. So I'm going to race this eight scale car too. Yep. So. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've gone through the records. You attend the worlds pretty much every time from 1994 onwards. You top qualify a couple of times. You just off the podium a couple of times. You break down in some semifinals. You know, by by the time we get to 2006, is it? You know, I have to I have to ask and wonder whether it was starting to feel like it just wasn't going to happen for you. Like it just looks like an incredible you know effort and run of over 10 years where things you got so close. Um, you know, a few mm-hmm. times and. Is that kind of how it felt to you, or you just felt like you were just continuing to learn and grow in eight scale and, you know, and getting closer and closer to the front? Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, it's at that time, more and more drivers are coming up and getting fast in that category, eight scale category. And uh, I wouldn't say, you know, your time's limited, but you do know your time's kind of limited. And, yeah. and I really wanted that title. So yeah. that, 06 was in Indonesia, uh, that world's there. And some drivers decided to not go due to some, you know, world conflicts that were going on. Um, event organizers reassured us that it's very safe, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I took, you know, I gambled and, you know, some of us went, some of us didn't. And, those that didn't missed out on a, one of the best eight scale worlds um, events that a club could put on, you know, um, in a beautiful location too. So um, yeah. And obviously I won, so I was happy. I went. Yeah, for sure. It looked like a, looked like a, I mean, I just watched the video of the final a few days ago and looks like a crazy tough track. Mark. By the time you get to the final, it, you know, just oh, yeah. like really hard work. Um, did it kind of break up as the weekend went on or was it, was it a tough track right from the beginning? Um, it was a big track compared to what we run here at home. Um, depth wise, it was, it was pretty deep. And, uh, as far as getting bumpy. Yeah. I mean, with that many cars on the track, um, you know, they kind of let it go. They don't really prep it like what we would hear and um, the track did, you know, deteriorate and become bumpy parts of the track would come up and, you know, it's all stuff that you had to adapt to. And then come the final, like, I just remember the amount of concentration, you know, you're so focused and you don't blink and you do all these things because you're just, you're trying to keep your car on the track. (laughs) You know, back then it wasn't like, okay, I got to hit my marks all the time. It's you got to drive around the bumps, you know, and um, that's, that's how it was just surviving. 
And that race, that that final hour race, really came to you through the race, didn't it? I, you know, I think you know you didn't hit the front until reasonably late on in the piece, and just that you know you just never went away. As I watched the race, you just never went away. You're just there and there and there. And is that kind of how it felt like to you? you? Just needed to stay in it. You know, in in Australia, we talk about buying a ticket to the last ten minutes kind of thing of just <laughs> needing to be there at the end. Yeah, I mean. Uh that race really stands out obviously because I won, but one, um, at the start, um, they had a, they had a berm in the very back corner, um, kind of leading onto the, the side straight away. And again, it was bumpy. Um, I think there were so many cars in that first opening lap that I got confused and my car, you know, it was dusty and, Anyway, my car ended up going over that. So I think I went from first or second <laughs> to dead last. And, you know, and then I made a few more mistakes after that. And I'm just like, it just kept talking to myself. I'm like, I flew all the way over here to come win this race, ended up TQing the race. Yeah. I know I'm fast enough. I just, I got to stop crashing. Yes. And I think it was like 40 minutes left. I think Yannick was leading. And, you know, making some time up on him and you start picking, you, you can tell where you're at in the, during the race. And obviously with some help, uh, some mechanical difficulties on his end, you know, I was able to, you know, get towards the front, towards the end. And next thing you know, now I'm racing with my best friend, Scott Hughes, yeah. uh, you know, for, for the lead. And, um, yeah, so it was it was funny, and uh, we joke. I talk to Scott almost daily, and uh, we're good friends. And he's like, "Really, the one time that I go to the world, you have to, you know, instead of me pitting you, you have to go and beat me." And uh, <laughs> so it's a funny story, but yeah, that was a difficult race, and that's one one thing I always tell Ryan: like, you can never give up because you just yeah. don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. You know, as I read back over the results, and maybe this is the, you know, this is hindsight speaking, but it feels as you kind of read the story of your career over that time that this marks a kind of a, you know, a high point in what is essentially a 12-year project from the first time you showed up in 1994 in Austria and so many close calls and possibilities that must been an, have been an incredible sense of, I'm guessing, relief, but also, you know, just joy to kind of hoist that trophy Indonesia in 2006. Oh yeah. Um, you know, there was so many races I was close, um, in, uh, gosh, where was it in, um, Portugal, um, I believe that year, Daniel record one. Yeah. Um, I was leading my semifinal by a very large amount and, I had this mysterious flame out and I just remember like taking my engine to the Novorossi people the night before, like having them check it over. And I always look back at them like, maybe I shouldn't have done that. I should have just <laughs> left the engine in my car because I've had no problems. Yeah. So that got away. Um, I didn't make the final there. And then um, also in Uruguay leading my semifinal there by a decent margin and the plastic uh, ball link on the steering steering linkage pops off, you know, any, any chances there um, again with a large lead. So, yeah, yeah. you know, a few chances here and there, but uh, yeah. finally got it and uh, 
that's that it just makes it that that one's so much sweeter so very special yeah extraordinary to to um, pick up that second world championship let's kind of just rewind a moment i'm i'm going to keep charging us on here so i don't keep you uh, up all night um at some point you know you start to get a little bit involved in electric on-road as well you know i'm, I'm guessing that's to do with uh, associated developing the tc3 is that kind of what drew you over there or what's the what kind of drew you to be doing some touring car racing in the you know late 90s and early 2000s yeah they started to obviously train car back then around that time was growing in popularity hmm. um associated you know their businesses in de- developing car kits you know um competitive car kits so the next kind of competitive category was um electric train car and um yeah that's when they we were developing the the tc3 at that time um a little bit different platform compared to what was out there everything was yeah. belt drive this car was shaft driven gearboxes um different layout hmm. um but it was fun developing that um a little did more you, hands-on on that project development? yeah i was gonna, gonna say did you have a role in that project yeah yeah so at that time i was um i was dabbling in it more and more um but i was now i'm kind of more of a test driver at, at associated you know i've i've kind of morphed my way out of helping Mike Reedy into more of a product development role there at Associated. So I was kind of working more under Cliff Lat at the time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that was fun. That was a fun project. With that, with that involvement in, you know, helping to develop a car, I mean, the TC3 really does go down as one of the all time great touring cars. Is that, you know, is that a pretty rewarding thing to look back on and to kind of go, yeah, I had a, you know, I had a little role in the development of, you know, what was a legendary car at the time. Yeah. I, I at the time you don't look at it that way. Um, I think now uh, you, you see it in a different light, especially now with people reaching out and asking you for autographs on, you know, replica car body shells and stuff like that. But um, you know, people are always asking me, do you have extra cars in your, you know, at home that you want to get rid of? And, <laughs> You don't realize that that history it, it's out there and people people want a part of it you know and uh but yeah it was a good car and yeah um i'm glad i was a part of it so the two things i do particularly want to ask you about there one one you alluded to already you know that world's in yatabi in 2000 you know going so close to a win there um you know you said there was some some uh shall we call it on track interactions which didn't kind of fall your way but that you know to be that close to winning a world's in a different category again uh, again in japan mm-hmm. yatabi that um, that must have been a pretty cool experience even if things didn't quite go in the end the way that it might have been nice for them to go yeah yeah i think myself in japan um i i really had good success racing in japan <laughs> it didn't matter if it was off-road or on-road i I just really did good in Japan, um, winning Reedy races and, you know, off-road four-wheel drive world championship. And then, uh, in the year 2000, the touring car worlds were at Yatabi, Yokomo's home track on their really nice indoor, uh, on-road track, asphalt on-road track. And, uh, you know, we went there, we had a, we had a good game plan and, 
course with touring car it all comes down to tires 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 and we had developed um, a really good program to test the inserts for the tires and i remember that it came down to the because everyone was using the same tires and um, but you could use whatever inserts you wanted and that came key. We had the, a special durometer fixture that we had set up to test inserts. And yeah, it was, it was our, our program was on point and it really showed on the track and, you know, um, the car was easy to drive and it was yeah. fast. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it had that reputation, the TC3 and really set a standard, didn't it? For, you know, layout and, and design, chassis design for quite a few years until, Sure. Probably really until horsepower overcame the limitations of shaft drive. And, you know, so now we see Correct. things going back to belts. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned there the Reedy race. So, so let me ask you about that while we're here. You, you won the Reedy race in Japan, but you also won the Reedy off-road race in the US and you won the Reedy touring car race. You know, at, in 2001, it's probably the height of touring car race competitiveness in yeah. the US, if not the world. I think you're still the only guy to win both on-road and off-road ready races. What, you know, that yes. must rank up there as an achievement as, you know, as you look back on your career behind the wheel. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm really proud of that one. You know, yeah. if you look back at stats, um, there's only, a, if you look at to today's world, there's only a couple guys that could possibly do that. Um, you know, and, I would say there's maybe three people that could do that and um, no one's done it. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously the Reedy race is maybe on a hiatus right now, but I'm sure it'll come back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, I mean, to race against Masamis and the Kinwalds and the Joel Johnson's and Barry Baker's and on road, as well as in, off-road you have masamis and kinwalds and yeah, yeah. you know francis's and yeah. all the top guys that that did it and to walk away with one in off-road and one in on-road yeah no one's done it so it's pretty cool it is it is an interesting little kind of thought exercise to think about who is around now that could do that and that i mean i think the challenge really is winning the off-road Ready race in the US on you know what are typically US conditions is pretty difficult for a European driver and so you know that's rarely happened in the history of the ready race so while you might see someone like Bruno Coelho or Mikhail Olowski winning the touring car version of the event yeah for those guys you know they're they're probably the leading European candidates to win both of them but getting that win sure. in the off-road categories are it's that's a steep ask isn't it on on US turf yeah, that's why I say there's there's probably only three people or so um, that I think if you were to do that event today that could pull it off. Coelho would be one. Cavalieri is a you know another one. Yeah. You know, and you know the third, you know Orlowski possibly. I mean, yeah. there's only a couple people for that third spot, but other than that, I don't. Yeah. I don't really know of anyone else that yeah. is strong in both those categories. Not too many. Let's uh, let's take a quick look at the fourth category in which you've tasted success, and a you know a world a world cup uh, pseudo world championship win in two thousand two comes to you in the first running of that event for Nitro Touring, the the two hundred millimeter Nitro Tourers. 
you know, again, this is Team Associated bringing the NTC3 to the table, a, you know, a Nitro platform that shares a lot in common with the TC3. Did, were you doing much Nitro Tour? Was it really just to show up and do this one race kind of thing? Or were, were you kind of, you know, with the Team Associated um, diving did, yeah. into that category? Yeah, I did some events uh, back home, um, kind of leading up to that. We had, um, uh, at the time, was uh, Revelation Raceway. It wasn't a dirt track. It was actually a paved. Underneath all that dirt today is a on-road track, believe okay. it or not. Yeah. Um, but that's they've held, you know, Electric World Championships there. Um, but we did a lot of testing there. That was a proper you know, nitro touring car track. So we did a lot of running there prior to that world. Um, and we showed up there and, you know, I would like to say that even though it's not categorized as a world oh, it's championship, a, it's a world championship, it, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and the only reason I say that is, um, David Speshat, um, when he won his world championships, you know, touring car at that yes. time, was still a world cup. And I, and I've always asked him this and I said, Hey David, do you consider, and he's like, absolutely. It's a world championship title. Yeah. So I'm claiming it as a third title. Yeah. And a third different category. And that's what I said right off the top, you know, that I've been through the records and I can't find anyone else. So when I said you're on a short list of people who've, you know, won in three different categories at a world level, that list is one person and that's you. Um, you know, so so the technicality of the name of the event aside, like it is to me an extraordinary achievement to kind of win across three categories, and um, you know, at that to kind of be the first in that category of of Nitro Tour, um, which you know became really big over that era. Um, did you yeah, did you go to Brazil um, yeah. in two thousand four to try and defend, or was that just a really a one? I did, I did, you know, and at that time. Um, the cars made a bigger leap in development and yeah. it kind of left the shaft drive car, you know, the shaft drive car kind of excelled on the smaller style tracks, mm-hmm. even though that track for the first worlds that we went to was big. Mm-hmm. The one in uh, Brazil was massive. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so we got there and we just got, we didn't have the proper, you know, gearing and yeah. the motor setup wasn't correct. And uh, so, yeah. But I did go to that. Um, I think I was in one of the semifinals, possibly. Yeah. yeah. Extraordinary, extraordinary achievement. So, I mean, that, that it begs a question for me. You know, you've won across all of those different categories. Just, mm-hmm. just Mark, tell me a little bit about the different demands of each. You know, what it takes to win in eight-scale buggy, you know, versus 10-scale off-roading, you know, in on-road versus off-roading, electric versus nitro there. I guess in part I'm asking here, what are your strengths and what enables you to win across those different categories? Um, you know, it's really um, kind of the team that you're around. Hmm. Um, and the reason why I say that, um, you know, you look at today's drivers, um, hmm. the one that to me is the strongest in all categories is Bruno Coelho. Hmm. And he, he has a good team around him that he relies on. He may not be the nitro touring car guy or the eight scale off-road guy, but he knows how to drive and he relies on those people that are more category experts to give him the information and car setup and stuff like that to help him get his program kind of 
uh, more efficient, more dialed in, which allows him just to go drive and be a racer. And that's what he does. And he's a good racer and obviously in more categories than one. Um, so I really think it's the people that are around you um, that, that help in your success in those different categories. So, so maybe just take the chance then to, you know, to name some of those people that were around for you. You've talked about, you know, you've talked about some of the guys from Team Associated, Mike Greedy, Cliff Lett, and so on. You've talked about Brian and that relationship with him in the early years. Who were some of the other people that were significant or influential in, in your own? Yeah, career? I mean, so I think kind of in the early gas days, you know, Nitro Truck, um, it was learning the, the whole Nitro style program was was really from gene husting and curtis husting um with their strong background in nitro racing obviously they raced nitro years back but again i lean on them for their um for their expertise in those categories and you know gene was the one that kind of taught me how to break in an engine and, yeah. and do all that stuff. And I still use those same practices today, you know, um, in order to break it in and tune it properly. And so, yeah, I mean, nitro stuff, I contribute a lot of that to them. Um, electric, a lot of it, my greedy, yeah. if not all of it, um, in the off-road stuff. And then, you know, um, you have to lend a huge hand to, to Proline. Um, they kind of took me under their wing and helped me win a lot of races that I probably wouldn't have been as close um, because I had, you know, the tires are what connects your car to the track. So uh, without them, I, I wouldn't, you know, I won uh, two world championships for Proline. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. You you ended up working there, right, for a, for a, quite a long period of time as a part of the proline team. Is that have I got that right? Yeah, ten years. Uh -huh. yeah. What was the what was the sort of role or roles that you had in that over that period with proline? Um, so at the time I was working at Associated, and um, we were you know we were getting ready to start a family, and we you know Orange County in California is extremely expensive, and um. <laughs> You know, the further you move away from Orange County, the cheaper housing gets. Okay. And gotcha. Okay, so I'm going to move further away, but now I got to drive into Orange County. I don't want to do that. Um, so the option, there was another option, ProLine. They worked, you know, kind of further out of Orange County, much further out, and um, kind of a compromise. So um, kind of landed halfway between ProLine and Orange County and ended up uh, talking to Tim and Todd over at ProLine. They offered me a position, you know, to kind of help in, in product development, but more in the, um, you know, they were worried if I was, would get my hands dirty. I'm like, I get my hands dirty. So <laughs> I think the first two weeks they had me just doing grunt work and which was fine. And, yeah. um, but along the way, you know, Tim, Tim was their main product product manager and uh he's the one that kind of showed me a lot of the cad skills and mm -hmm. i'd stay after work and you know just kind of fumble through the cad stuff messing around on some of the machines back in the shop and just kind of fumble my way through it and uh with his help of course and uh, yeah so that led to a 
you know, more of an engineering role, developing tires and um, making molds and stuff like that for ProLine. There's a, there's a lot about tire development that I think, you know, I guess I think is a bit different to it. It's really hard to test, isn't it? It's really hard to, you can machine a different suspension arm or you can cut a different carbon chassis, but you actually, it's really hard to test an idea with a tire. You, at some point, you've actually just got to bite the bullet, don't you, and make a mold and build the tires. And yeah, so there's, how much there's of it really is no art? testing. <laughs> how much of it is art and how much of it is engineering? Uh, yeah, I think, um, and that's one thing that um, I, I kind of pride myself on as a product development. Um, I say engineer, I don't have an official school title as an no, no. engineer, but, but that's the work. Um, self-taught and um, because I raced at the highest level and you can feel those very small changes, hmm. you know what each thing does. And that I think by having that feel, um, you're able to translate it into you know, a CAD drawing, which the CAD drawing turns into a mold, the mold turns into an actual tire. And, you know, through trial and error, you know what works and what doesn't, and you you can um, apply that to each of the projects that I worked on. Can I just, can I ask you a couple of, or, you know, one other question in particular about tires, because not only are you there at ProLine, but obviously, you know, went on to a, a long period at AKA doing a lot of the development there. So there's, there's tread pattern, there's carcass design, there's compound. So I guess I'm, I'm a bit curious mm. about, you know, how much of a role does, does the rubber compound play? That seems like it's been the battleground of the last few years in sure. tires. Is that, is, am I reading that right? And how do you kind of yeah. test compounds? Yeah, so when I worked at Proline, um, it was, I mean, you can put to tread and all that stuff on there, but it does come down to compound because you could have a tire made out of plastic, but um, if it doesn't have the right um, the, the right rubber compound, it, yeah. that's what creates the grip. So we would always test, you know, grind the tread off um, and go to some of these tracks, even though there was no tread, you could t truly test compound because yeah. now you're not testing uh, yeah. the tread of the tire. You're just testing rubber to the track. Yeah. And may, some of that may come down to the carcass design, but for the most part, you're really testing how well the rubber, um, the grip generated from that type of rubber works. Hmm. Um, so you kind of learn that way. And a lot of the driving was just on more or less slick tires. Um, to help develop some of the early compounds. That is extraordinary. Uh, I, yeah. It's, it's a, I think I could talk to you for an hour just about tires because um, there's lots of things I'd love to ask about tires and the current scene in 8Scale oh. in particular where there's, I don't know, 15 different manufacturers. And I think you guys are you know, a little bit involved with hot race these days. And, you know, there's yep. yeah, anyway, long conversations we could have about tires. Yeah, that's, that's a different conversation, yeah, <laughs> a yeah. longer one for sure. The other uh, product question I just wanted to quickly ask you about, um, you know, I, I kind of ran across a 2005 peak racing release, the the Vantage Pavitas Edition motor, and, you know, OS had mm. a Pavitas tuned pipe at one stage. I just, you know, it strikes me as being a really surreal thing to have a product with your name on it. Um, was that was that a kind of a strange experience to have when companies like that, um, you know, start going, hey, Mark, can we, can we release a signature edition um, with your name on it? 
yeah, I mean, it's it's something you've you've seen other you know you've kind of I think Joel was Joel Johnson was kind of the first one that got his picture and name plastered all over the products that he would yeah. be using in his um, in his cars and so to see something like that come with your name you're like wow okay kind of made it that's kind of cool <laughs> turns out you know three or four world championships will do that for you yeah <laughs> that's beautiful uh i think we'll probably need to kind of wrap things up fairly soon so i can let you go i did want to ask you about ryan we talked a little bit about that at the beginning sure. um, and then a couple of other questions i want to wrap up with but you know how's ryan's development going he's you know he's a young man in a hurry he's predominantly focusing on eight scale is that right um you know, and how, how do you see his career developing? Yeah, he, um, he, uh, he, he grew up going to the track with me. So obviously it's not something I pushed him to do. Um, it's just something that we did together because that was kind of my job and, um, which was great because again, you want to spend time with your kids and with my son, that was something that we could do together. And, you know, we had there's pictures that pop up every now and then of him being super small and, you know, we're at the track and he's driving just like a short course truck around the track. Just, you know, at the beginning it was like, Hey, just keep it in the middle between the pipes, very in the very middle of the track. That's it. Don't do anything else. And, you know, then that turns into, okay, now don't crash, <laughs> you know, and as he gets older and then it, um, you know, becomes into, okay, now you're racing sportsmen and kind of graduate out of that into the intermediate race a couple of years there, get your feet wet. And, you know, now he's racing against the top guys in the world. Hmm. And, uh, you know, at that level, it comes, you know, there's a, there's a lot of learning to do to race at that highest level. And um, some of the things that I, you know, I think, as a dad, you try to tell them, Hey, you need to do this, this, and that kids don't necessarily listen to their parents quite well. <laughs> they <laughs> no, tend to listen so to it's not true. Yeah. I, I know, I know, but I'm afraid it is. Yeah. Um, you know, we went to the worlds this past year. It was Ryan's first worlds. Yeah. Um, I wanted to go there, uh, obviously not as a racer, but to support him and got to see a bunch of old, friends that I haven't yeah. saw, seen in a long time, but mainly there for Ryan and yeah. to give him that support and, and uh, kind of be that kind of second set of eyes on, on his stuff and be able to help him out. And, you know, stuff that I saw like, Hey, we need to try this and this and this and uh, his stubbornness, I guess, <laughs> to put it politely, just kept, <laughs> kind of kept him from making those changes a little earlier you know, we should have made those earlier than we should have, you know, and uh, yeah. so we were a little late to do that, but um, no, I mean, he, he's definitely shown that he can race with those guys. He made the final, not this year, but the last year at the nitro challenge, which yeah. that's a world championship final yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, going over to Europe, I told him, I said, you've never raced, anywhere overseas and it's going to be different which it was it's extremely different so i think he struggled with that a little bit tracks are different more high speed 
Um, you know, in one of the rounds, I think he got 18th for the round, which was maybe his highest for the round on a track that is not, I guess, really suits him. So that's good. Um, yeah, it was good. And then, you know, the end of the event, he finished 50th overall. He wasn't feeling too well at the end. He had a sinus infection, okay. which I'm sure didn't help, but uh, 50th, not bad. Not bad. And, I mean, you and I talked earlier in this conversation about, you know, that the only way to learn to go fast on different kinds of racetracks is to actually go and do it. Uh, so, you know, that's his first experience of doing that. And Exactly. Definitely from yeah. the outside and from a distance, you know, that improvement, that kind of learning seems evident there in you know year on year as you know as i watch on from the sure. other side of the pacific ocean yeah um, yeah uh a couple of final questions i have for you firstly i've i've been exploring and playing around with the chat gpt ai um as many of us are around the world at the moment and i asked it what i should ask you uh so i said to chat <laughs> gpt if i was to interview mark Pavitas, what should i ask him and one of the questions that it gave me, which I'm really curious about, uh, was to say, what was one of the most challenging experiences you had while racing and how did you kind of overcome it or deal with it? Uh, mm. So there's a question without notice for you, Mark, you know, a, a time that was pretty difficult and, you know, a race that was difficult or conditions that weren't great or um, we talked about um, Indonesia in 2006, for example, you know, being over the back of the, of, of the uh, boom on lap one and coming back from that, but. Is there something else? That yeah, I mean, that's those are race. Those are all race experiences. Um, I guess one thing that was probably one of the more difficult things was this happened at a race, and I love racing. You know, um, gosh, probably mid, early to mid twenties. We we were in Florida. Uh, winter champs was the event massive massive race people from all over were there um everyone looked forward to going there because it's in february the weather's amazing pretty nice yeah pretty nice and um so anyway we're all back there and i think i was after practice like one of the fastest ones um get ready for qualifying that night get a phone call from home that my dad had went, he was at work and went, uh, was complaining of chest pains and being my dad, he was like, ah, whatever. He ended up going home from work and my mom ended up taking the hospital just because she didn't want to hear him moaning around the house (laughs) and they get him to the hospital. They do a scan on him, And while he's on the table doing the scan, he, had a um, aortic aneurysm bust and uh yeah so i get a call from my mom and she's saying that i need to come home that you know my dad's in the hospital i'm like what do you mean my dad's in the hospital i'm I'm out here doing a race i'm doing really good you know like i don't want to come home just to see my dad you know eating hospital food (laughs) you know and, and and she's like, no, it's really serious. Wow. And uh, it it took me a while to like kind of like put the racing to the side and, yeah. you know, and uh, I, I don't know why I did, but, um, you know, I did. I was like, man, do I really go back? Is this really happening? Yeah. But, of course, it was really happening. And 
um, yeah, so the next day I had to, I had to, uh, find a flight home and, yeah. and got to the hospital and saw my dad hooked up to all this stuff, you know, and they had him in a coma, you know, trying to, because of all the surgeries he had. And so that was yeah. kind of my disconnect yeah. because yeah. I was so into racing that I kind of questioned, you know, uh, my family life. And anyway, that just kind of sticks out in my head. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, family is important. And, yeah. uh, yeah, I just kind of had to separate that at the time, you know, yeah. cause you know, I want to beat Masami and I'm there to beat Brian <laughs> and all these guys that I know I can beat. And I'm like, uh, my stuff was so good. And I got that, you know, and that happened. So yeah, yeah. I made the right decision. I came yeah. home and, yeah. and, uh, you know, my dad's obviously still around. So, yeah. Yeah. um, but yeah, you, you just don't know when your time is. So it was good to spend that time with him. So, I, I mean, the cheeky part of me wants to know if you've, you know, later on, once he'd recovered, if you, you know, if you had served it up to him for costing you a win at the uh, winter champs and making you leave. Early <laughs> <too>. <laughs> no, I never, I never put it to him that no, way. No, no. Um, but there was other years, you know, we went back, um, to that event and, uh, I've always, like I said, I've always had good success at that event. And I think I won maybe another year or two after that event, after that episode. But, uh, that's just one that really sticks out yeah. in, in my racing is, um, yeah, just, um, yeah. Challenging just learning. Yeah. challenging. Yeah. Cause yeah. you, you know, as a racer, you want to beat those guys, but yeah. you know, family comes first. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a good reminder for all of us, isn't it? No matter how, no matter how seriously we take it, at the end of the day, uh, there are some things that are more important than RC car racing. Um, sure. Yeah. My final question, and this is definitely unfair, but I'll ask it anyway. You know, over all those years and all that different kind of racing, you know, is there a favourite race car that sticks out to you? One that you know you will just you know f most fondly remember. Um, and maybe even a favorite place to race, you know, if I can give you a double banger question. Um, yeah. What's, what's um, the car for you? I mean, that super athlete was, was kind of special. It, uh, it, the, in, you know, the engine was on the opposite side of the car. Uh, same with the tank. <laughs> Everything was just was flipped backwards. around compared yeah. to, yeah. Compared to what today's standards are. And, um, I always kind of wonder, like, is the stuff we're racing now, does it need to be on the other side, you know? But uh, anyway, that car just really stood out um, as being a really good race car, easy to drive, um, one, one handful events, you know, you know, not world events, but uh, regional and... Um, you know, the, just larger U.S. Yeah. events, yeah. and uh, so that one st sticks out as a is a really cool car. Hmm. Uh, the gas truck that Associated did was a was a cool project. And you won a bunch um, of races with that, right? Like at least a couple of national championships, and you know that gas truck was. Yeah, they cool. had gas truck was huge, was yeah. very big, and um, yeah, one they, they had a just like Roar you know, the organization, they had what was called Norca and, uh, Norca recognized the popularity of this gas truck division and they held a world cup event, not a world championship, oh, okay. but a world cup. Yep. Yep. And, uh, 
the first year they had it, it was for truck only. So it was for nitro and electric truck. And uh, that first year I won the nitro and the electric again against my friend, Brian Kimwald, um, duking it out to the end in both classes. (laughs) So, but yeah, one of one, a handful of titles with that gas truck, which was really cool. That is very cool. And, and race tracks, places that you race that, you know, that kind of just really kind of going, look, that was a special place and, you know, a, a racetrack I'll never forget. Is there, is there something that comes to mind? Yeah, I'd have to say, um, you know, I had a lot of success in Japan at that yeah. track, um, at Yatabi. That's a special track, but I would say probably even more than that was probably the track that it went to my first eight scale world championship, yeah. which was in Austria. Um, just that whole experience, you know, eight scale nitro off-road in Europe is it, I, I honestly say it doesn't get any bigger than that. And, uh, that event kind of proved my whole, you know, you have this scenario built up in your head, what this event should be. And it far exceeded that, um, not only from the size of the track and how fun it was to drive, but people were paying to go to this event to watch and uh it was packed packed full of people and it was in this this hillside that was just just so cool um so cool so it just really stands out you know um got to meet a lot of good people there and again you know um, that's one cool thing with rc is the people um that's really what RC is, is, is the people. And the longer you do it, the the more people you're going to meet and yeah. you're going to meet some good people. So yeah. met a lot of good ones there. That is for sure. It, it, you remind me that, you know, I've often and long thought that the best racetracks that I've ever been to uh, are those that are built, that have 3d three dimensions, you know, they're built on the side of a hill or in a bowl or, a, you know, there's sure. rising and falling and climbing and descending and, you know, not just a flat kind of pancake flat piece of dirt. Uh, with jumps put on top of it um and that yeah that racetrack if i remember the photos right was definitely like that mark it's been an absolute delight and there are there literally are a thousand questions that i wanted to ask but we you know i just want to really honor and respect your time and you've been so generous with it so uh thank you for joining me um blessings for the year ahead and for you know ryan's development and you know and you know maybe we'll see you trackside or holding the gun at a world championship final sometime down the track um on the other side of uh on the other side of the pit kind of relationship but but for now thank you so much uh, for joining me today for a chat yeah i appreciate the time scott and um yeah reliving uh some of the past it's always fun to talk about so i appreciate it Unfortunately, only some of the past uh, folks you get the sense that there is a whole lot more that we could have uh, chatted about uh that's it for today we'll be back next week uh with uh more and more uh, interesting incredible stories from amazing people around the world of rc uh for now though thanks again to mark for joining me and folks i have you th- hope you have a great week